It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Escape the ordinary with green and blacks. Wildly, deliciously organic. Sponsor of the Moments That Made Me, the weekend podcast. A rich, intense chocolate to savour. Hello and welcome to The Moments That Made Me. This is a podcast that asks people not where they are now, but rather how they got there. I'm Vicky May, editor of The Weekend magazine at the Irish Examiner and your host. This podcast took shape because of our times. 2020 has been a year of reflection. We're forced to live in the now and we can't make plans too far ahead. So many of us find ourselves looking back. Here, we ask people to do just that, to take a walk through their lives and pick the key points, good or bad, personal or professional, that shaped their lives. The moments that made them. Today, we are very honoured to have Vicky Phelan as our guest. Vicky was instrumental in exposing the cervical check controversy. But long before she stood on those high court steps, Vicky had been through other great traumas in her life. A horrific car crash in her teens that took the lives of her friends. Later, her daughter would suffer serious burns in a devastating accident at their home. She talks to us about these and other moments that have been instrumental in her life. Experiences that she says have helped her cope with the cancer she lives with today. We spoke a few weeks ago as Vicky prepared to watch the Late Late Toy Show with her kids. Vicky, thanks so much for, for joining us for our Moments That Made Me podcast. Um, and I know this is the focus here is all about looking back. Um, and I think that anyone who has read your book will know that you've already lived a few lifetimes already with all that you've been through. I couldn't quite believe it when I was reading your book. Um, but I just wanted to check in on the now and and how things are going for you. And I know you were... We went on Twitter recently and said that your cancer is growing back and that your Pembro medication isn't as effective as it was. And you spoke like you stopped the country in its tracks when you spoke on Claire Byrne and you talked um, about a potential trial in the US. Um, how, are, how are you feeling now? Um, I'm OK. Uh, I can feel, you know, I know something's going on, I suppose, in the last number of weeks. Um, you know, I have a new tumour in my lung. It's very small. It's about three millimetres, but... You can probably hear it now. I'm always very chesty in the morning. And I think it's because, you know, when you're lying down flat, you know, with your lungs, I suppose, fluid is uh, kind of accumulating. So I find the morning, I really notice that I'm kind of more breathless and it takes me a while to kind of clear a lot of that back out. And then I don't notice it after a while. But um, that is one indicator that I know something's going on there, obviously. Um, but other than that, it doesn't really, you know, bother me most of the time. I don't think about it. Um, apart from that, yeah, obviously, I'm more tired. Um, I really mm. do have to sleep a lot more now. Um, so if I get up, have to get up early in the morning for interviews or whatever, I have to go back to bed for a couple of hours because I just wouldn't be able to keep going for the day. So little things like that I notice, but I suppose I've been lucky that I haven't had any pain. 
you know, no extra new pains, no, um, you know, really bad symptoms um, that would require that I'd have to go to hospital, I suppose. That's always the kind of the line for me. Nothing that will have to make me go to hospital really at this stage. Uh, now, I was very sick about two weeks ago. I had about 10 days of a really, really bad bug. Um, and I, to be honest, I'd say if we weren't in COVID, I would have ended up in hospital. But I kind of saw it through at home. Um, but I had really bad headaches, spike in temperatures, vomiting. It was awful. Um, I've had it before. This is my second time getting it. Um, and they keep saying it's viral, but it has to, uh, to me, it must be to do with my cancer. But but COVID must be a concern too, Vicky. You must be. Yeah, it is because, of course, <sighs> I'm really worried about ending up in hospital because nobody mm. will be able to visit me. That is the reality with COVID. Yeah. So I'm going to, you know, that's why I'm trying to do as much as I can to stay at home, really, you know, um, and try, you know, you know, as far as possible to keep away from people um, because I don't want to catch COVID either. Uh that's that's it too, you know. But um, look, you can't be worrying about these things either. You still have to live your life. But you describe being tired, you know, at times, and yet you're tireless in your campaigning. Like you just don't stop. I I couldn't keep up with your schedule. You know, it's it's quite incredible. Do you ever wake up in the morning and go, you know what? I just can't do this podcast today. I just can't do this radio interview. I I can't. You know, I have to stop. I have to sleep. Or are you just that driven that you will just... No, God, no, I'm human. No. I'm human. I do. There are days okay. when I wake up and I go, oh, Jesus Christ, why did I agree to do this? Or, <laughs> you know, I'd just love to stay in bed, you know. So as long as I can give myself a couple of mornings where I can stay in bed, I'm OK. But there's no way I would, you know, I try and fit things in so that I have two or three days where I don't have very much on at all. Because I have to, I have to use those days to kind of recharge the batteries because... Got to listen to your body. Exactly. That's it. So, you know, I've learned, I suppose, as I've gone along the way over the last number of years that, you know, putting something in every day and packing it up, I can't do that anymore. I just I just physically can't. So I don't do it. You know what I mean? Um, so, you know, like today, this is the only podcast or interview I have today. That's it. Uh, because we have the Late Late Toy Show now tonight, Vicky. So it's I very know, important. We're so excited. Yeah, we? so yeah. excited. Counting so, down the hours, yeah. I know. So, you know, for me, that's a day like for my kids, you know. So uh, I'll go collect my son from school and I'm sure he'll be up to 90 at that stage. And It's like Christmas Eve. Yeah. And we get in the PJs and we've all the treats yeah. and the munchies in and... Yeah, you know, so that that's what you, you have to do those the, things, yeah. you know. So yeah. I made sure I had nothing else today because that was what I wanted to focus on. So that's that, your focus. You know, you have to, you have to do those things. And how are things looking in terms of the US trial? How are you? So I'm in the middle of applying them? for it. Um, and I suppose the good thing is that I've applied for a trial here before. So I know that um, it's quite complicated. It can take quite a while because uh, not not from the States. They're all very quick over there. It's this side. Because they're looking for loads of um, copies of my records, up to date progress reports, copies of my scans. And it would be just lovely, Vicky, if I could have a one stop shop where I go, can I have a copy of my file here, please, and send it to the States? No, it's not like that. I have to go to two or three different places, chase it up. So I've been at this now for about three weeks. And I mean, at this stage, I've been in the same hospital for nearly three years. So, um, you would kind of wonder, wouldn't you? Uh, first of all, I was trying to get copies of my scans and um, they told me I'd have to send in an FOI request. Well, I hit the roof. I said, you're absolutely joking me. That will take. And I know how long these things take. They take weeks. I said, I'm applying for a clinical trial. I said, I'm terminally ill. I said, I don't have the time to be waiting for this bullshit, as I call it. So I, I said, what do I need to do to get the scans quicker? So they said, well, if you if you if it, they are requested from your team, we'll be able to send you a copy. But like, why do you have to ask for all this information? Why do you have to go around the houses? Yeah. So it's all these little things that I just think they kind of exasperate you really to a point where you just think, you know, where it would be easier to give up. 
You yeah, know? and you see some people would, and I know that. They would. And that's what really bothers me, Vicky. And that's why I've campaigned so much, because I know a lot of other people would have given up at this stage. But, you know, look, I'm stubborn, stubborn as a mule. But I think these things have to be called out in order to try and change the system, because it has. there has to be a better way. But that's what you do. You're always like, I find with you, you're, you talk about the taboo subjects and you're you're breaking down. There's still so much stigma associated with with cancer, um, you speak so openly about the impact of cancer on women's sex lives. You spoke about hair loss on Clara Byrne. Um, you speak about your own mortality. It's things that everyone is kind of scared to talk about. And I think, I know I spoke to you, before, I said it to you that I had cancer myself and I went through a, a temporary menopause as a result of my treatment. But no one, none of the doctors told me that I was going through a menopause. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? I had to piece it together. It's like they'll feed, they'll drip feed you bits of information, whereas you want to be responsible for your own body and be empowered. That, that's how that would be my attitude to it. But it's a guy to kind of go, oh, I have dry eyes and oh, I'm getting night sweats. And again, I had to piece it together and go, this is the menopause. And why didn't you tell me? And I could have done something about it. And, and you're a young woman. That would terrify it. Most 25. People, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But by you talking about it, you're you're breaking down those barriers and you're ripping apart those taboos is that is that something is that were you always like that Vicky were you always someone who just spoke out about everything I've always been very blunt um uh, sometimes it gets me in trouble because I'm too blunt I say things that most people are thinking but won't say and you know I will unfortunately so I've learned that the hard way that sometimes you know you can't say certain things you kind of have to do the polite thing and say oh yeah you look lovely or you know Whereas I think, you know, if you, if, you know, why would you go out on that, you know, so for somebody else wouldn't say that. So, you know, things like, but like this is, I suppose, more serious things. But, you know, I, I tell you, it's because I've met so many women like like what you've just said. I mean, why don't they tell you that you're going to hit temporary menopause for a young woman? That's terrifying. And what if you wanted to have more children and you thought, what if this can't be reversed? All of that needs to be discussed. It's like. I lost my pubic hair when I had radiation, when I had the brachytherapy. So when I had the external radiation, I didn't, you know, lose any hair. But then I had these three sessions of brachytherapy where they radiate your insides, literally up your vagina. And um, I lost my pubic hair. Now, I mean, every single bit of it, it was gone. I was like, you know, the day I was born. Um, but nobody told me that was going to happen. Now, yeah. for me, that didn't really bother me. I was, th- I was typical, you know, my, my sense of humor. I thought, Jesus, this is great. I won't have to have a bikini wax. <laughs> but like for old, I spoke to other women about this, you know, just to see what people thought. And there were a number of older women in, say, in the 221 Plus group who were absolutely horrified that this had happened to them and nobody told them. And they were embarrassed. So, you know, these are things that have to be talked about. You can't just gloss over them and not tell people that this is something that's going to happen during your treatment because, you know, it's 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 already difficult going through a treatment without not being told that, that there are certain things that will happen to you as a result of it. Yeah, you need to be told the full facts, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. OK, we're going to focus on the moments that you've identified for us. So the first um, the first moment that has been the first thing that's really had an impact on your life is education. That's a key theme for you. Um, and I read in your book that you came down the stairs looking to start school at three and a half, which is unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you see, um, my mother um, always, my mother loved reading, always loved reading. She still does. She reads two or three books a week and she does the crossword every day. She's really, you know, has always been into reading and words. And so once we were small, that was the one thing she could do with us. She always read stories to us. And I suppose she could see that as she was reading stories to me when I was small, I was starting to pick up the words already. So she started, you know, 
teaching me, I suppose. And even though she didn't think I'd pick it up, but I did. And I was pretty much reading books before I started school, small books now, you know, with small words. Mm. Um, And of course, I thought, well, if I can read a book, I can go to school. And I was watching all the kids kind of, you know, getting the bus going down the road in their uniforms. And I said to mom, why can't I go to school? You know, and, and she said, you're too young. You have to wait till next year. Because I was only, you know, my birthday was the end of October. I wasn't going to be four. And she said, you have to wait till next year. I said, that's a long time, ma'am. I said, why can't I go? And I kept pestering her, which I do with a lot of things. I pester and I keep going. So I suppose I had her driven, demented. And she thought she'd bring me to the principal, you know, for for him to tell me. Because she thought if I heard it from somebody else, sure, that would be the end of it. But of course he said, sure, we'll you give convinced her, him. We'll, yeah, I convinced him and he said, sure, we'll give her a go. And he was kind of wink, wink, nod, nod to my mother thinking she won't last. And by God, I did. I kept going back and that was it, you know. So it was in you. It was in me. Yeah, I think it was in me from a very early age. Just once I could, words, once I discovered words, that was it. I was off in a world of my own, I think. And there was one particular teacher who really had an impact on you, Miss Keys. Yeah, Miss Keys. I, I call her breather now, but I still struggle because I think, you know, when, you, when you've had a teacher, you still, don't you? You're never... And she totally. keeps saying to me, Vicky, would you please call me Breathe? And I, I'm not going, you <laughs> Oh, you'll always be Miss Keys. Yeah. So, yeah. So Miss Keys was just, oh, she was phenomenal. Um, uh, we keep each other, we keep in touch. She actually messaged me the other day. Um, she's just fantastic. She was my French and English teacher in secondary school. She was also my Latin teacher. We did Latin classes for three years um, at lunchtime. So she was one of those teachers that if she saw any kind of potential in children, she would kind of try and bring that up uh, and she dedicated her lunch times teaching us Latin because she, she could see there was four or five of us doing it that were all kind of had a, a kind of a, a thing for languages that we were quite good and she thought if we she taught us Latin we'd have the basis which she was perfectly right but you know to think that you know the dedication that she had and the time she gave um, just yeah it's phenomenal and I suppose you know I came from a family where nobody had gone to college you know my, my parents were working class mom had finished her school she did her leaving, but dad didn't. Dad did his group search or whatever it was at the time. I went off working and none of my family um, or my mother and father's family, nobody had gone to college. It kind of wasn't done, you know, it wasn't the done thing. And I say that now and people are looking at me horrified, but like, you know, the early 90s, that was the way it was. Absolutely. You, you kind yeah. of went off and worked, you know, you didn't. Really I was work. the first in my family yeah, as well. Yeah, you know. that's the way it was. Yeah. So I kind of wouldn't, if it wouldn't have been on my radar, even though I would have thought, yeah, I'd love it. But I just thought, oh, you know, you never think you're good enough or you never think sure, that's not, you know, nobody in my family went. So why would I go? You know, but she kind of encouraged me to start thinking about it from a kind of an early stage, um, probably after the intercert. Um that was when I started thinking, yeah, maybe I can do this because I don't think I'd have had the confidence, to be honest, without her kind of pushing me along, you know, and telling me. I could. Even showing you what to do. Yeah, yeah. Like she it, was yeah. the guidance counsellor as well. I mean, she had so many different hats, <laughs> that woman in oh. school. So she brought in all these prospectuses and she said to me, I think UL would be a really good fit for you because it was continuous assessment. And, and she, it's funny, she said, you're very bright, Vicky, she said, but you can tend to be a bit lazy. So I think this will keep you on your feet. You know, she was just amazing. She knew exactly yeah. what would suit me and, and it did. And she wrote you a beautiful note, didn't she, when you were given your honorary fellowship from WIT? She said, I always knew you would do something great, but I always wished that your something great would have manifested itself publicly without the pain. It's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, it was. It was lovely. And it was so... I'm getting upset now. Um, I really would have liked her to have been there, but she couldn't. You know, she was over in Dubai. Her daughter lives in Dubai, so she was over on holidays. But she did come to my book launch, so I was delighted that she was able to come to that. And, uh, you know, I've met her a couple of times since for coffee, before COVID, obviously. 
But yeah, it's been lovely for me to be able to give back to her because I think often teachers get a bad press. Um, and when you have a really good teacher, I think particularly for kids from a background where, you know, school and college are not really on the radar. I think if you get a good teacher, it can change your life. And you stayed within that kind of strand of education, didn't you? Um, but that critical thinking then must have really helped you, even the way you're talking about finding US trials. And I'm sure that's you digging for that. There's no one doing this for you. And you analysing you know, your own charts, your, you know, your medical records, that's all, that's, the, that's the same critical thinking, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, it is. It is. It's just questioning things, you know, I suppose. And I remember actually when I was accepting my uh, fellowship at WIT, I gave a speech at that. And one of the things I was, uh, you know, kind of being critical of, I'm always critical of something, is the way we, uh, our education system is structured in that we don't start learning about th critical thinking skills until you go to college. And there are some kids who don't ever go to college, so they don't ever develop those skills. So if you don't have those skills, you're never going to be able to question things. You always accept. So if you read something in the newspaper, you know, there are some people who will accept that as fact when actually it isn't. It's objective. And, you know, if you if you if you learn these skills in college, you understand that, you know, certain newspapers have a certain leaning towards, you know, some are more, you know, leaning towards the government, some are leaning towards the, the right. But like if you don't question those things, you will accept whatever you read or whatever you're told is fact. So, you know, those skills are really important and I really think they should be taught in secondary school, kind of towards the end of, the, you know, the senior cycle. Children should be taught how to develop those skills much earlier, I think, because a lot of kids don't go on to college, so they don't ever get to develop that type of a skill, which would really come into its own in later life. It's the power of education for every aspect of your life. The next moment you want to talk about is... Um is the horrendous car accident that you went through when you were 18. Um, and I think a lot of people have don't realise so much has happened. There was there's a Vicky feeling we don't know, you know, you've been through so much in your life. Do you want to tell us about that summer? Yeah, so I had been, I was in college, I was in my second year in college in, in UL. And um, the re one of the reasons I chose UL was because they had a really good um called a cooperative education placement program. So if you, and I was studying languages, I did a double degree in French and Spanish. So I would have had to spend a year in France and a year in Spain. So I was in France on my year abroad working. Um, and I was absolutely loving it, loved it over there. And really my French absolutely took off, really improved, met a, and then, you know, fell in love, met a French guy. And, uh, you know, we were only going out a short time, maybe two or two months, three months. Um, and it was coming to the end of my time. It was in July. I was finishing up at the end of August. Um, and a lot of the other kind of student um, students that were coming for there were students working there from all over France. And there was a couple of us then from Ireland and there was a few from England as well, I think, from a, a hotel management course or something. Um, so we were all finishing at different times. And this particular night that we went out, we were celebrating one of the French students that was finishing up um, her placement. And we went to this nightclub um, and we were on our way home. Uh, it was probably four o'clock in the morning and some of us were going to work for six. Like, you know, those are the days where you just survived on no sleep. Um, but we were coming home anyway from this nightclub and uh, we had a car crash. It was a head on collision. There were five of us in the car. Um, I was in the front passenger seat. Uh, my boyfriend was driving and the girl who was finishing up her placement, Katie, was in the, you know, the middle in the back seat with no seatbelt on. This was in the days when really, you know, you didn't wear many seatbelts unless it was in the front. Um, so there were three in the back. She was in the middle. And then there was a, an Irish girl called Lisa. Uh, no, sorry, Lisa was in the middle because uh, she went out over the, the, the... And the reason I say that is just so people understand why it's so important to wear seatbelts. Um, she was in the middle of the back seat and she went literally out over the two front seats, broke her two legs. 
and she hit her head then and that was the damage, she was brain damaged and Katie was in the back and went out through the side window and she's paralysed um, for life um, and not just from her waist down, she's paralysed literally from her neck down so she has very little use of her hands. Um, I visited Katie last year, we keep in touch regularly, um, she's a great friend uh, but Lisa died, she survived for a week but she really didn't survive, she was on life support and her parents had to make the awful decision to turn off her life support machine because she was brain dead. Christoph died literally straight away. His neck broke. Uh, there was no headrests in the car. And these are all things that you kind of just take for granted now. But, you know, no headrests. So his neck went back with the impact and broke. Um, and I spent almost three and a half months in hospital, broken off a lot of bones. But, you know, I survived it. Um, about 70% of the bones in my body, uh, particularly all on the left side, um, 360 stitches or something, lots of internal bleeding injuries, cosmetic surgery. My nose was literally torn off my face. They had to sew it back on. Yeah, so it was a lot. And, you know, I did, again, I was in a coma for about 10 days um, and it was my poor father who had to tell me that Christoph, my boyfriend and Lisa were dead. I had no, I, I you know, I suppose it's your body's way of protecting you. I had no recollection of the accident. And you still don't? Um, no, it came back to me. Bits of it came back to me. I don't remember the actual impact, but I remember sounds and smells. I remember the smell of burning, um, the smell of petrol, you know, uh, and the sound of helicopter blades. You know, it's funny the things you remember. Uh, yeah. So there are things I remember, but not the whole. It never came back to me in full, but I think that's, you know, your body kind of protecting you from trauma, really, you know, I suppose. How did you get over that at 18? So young. Yeah, I think because you're so young and nothing bad, you know, has ever really happened to you, it's an awful shock to the system. It really is. You just, you know, it's bad enough being involved in an accident, but being involved in an accident where you've lost two friends and you haven't been able to attend a funeral and you're in hospital for months. I mean, I was in hospital for nearly three and a half months. Um, and by the time I came out, you're newly institutionalized. I was terrified coming out of the hospital because I didn't know what to do with my life. Well, you know, everybody else was... And, you, and I was very bitter. I was angry. I was looking around kind of going, well, life is still going on here, but look what's happened to me, you know. And yeah. I just felt that um, it was very unfair. Um, I got very angry and it took me about two years really to get over it um, physically uh, as well as mentally, I suppose, and emotionally. You know, it took a, it took a toll, um, but it's lived with me since. I mean, it was 27 years ago and I still... I still get upset thinking about it, you know, I, I think it's something that just doesn't leave you, you know, really shaped, shaped my life, um, shaped my attitude to life as well. You know, you can see that, you know, bad things can happen to good people. And at the same time, life still goes on and you have to try and pick up the pieces and move on. But I also saw another way to um, the health. That was my first, I suppose, uh, taste of a health system, of, you know, of dealing with the health system because I was in there for so long. And you've said it was so different in France, the patient-focused service versus the system-focused. Absolutely. And this was back in the 90s, you know, 1994. Yeah. I mean, it was absolutely... My, my parents were astonished, actually, at the way um, the system worked over there. So before I was transferred back home to Ireland, um, I had all of the, the, the surgeons who had operated on me and there were five of them because I had five different types of injuries. Say I had cosmetic surgery, I had uh, ophthalmic surgery because I damaged my eye. Um, I had um, an orthopedic surgeon, obviously, because there was so many breaks. Um, and I and I had skin graft, so that was part of the cosmetic surgery. My ankle got torn in the damage in the car, so I had to have my you know a skin graft to kind of sew back my ankle. And I had um, a medical 
uh, surgeon because I had had internal bleeding. So there was five different guys and they each came down with no entourage and sat at the end of my bed, you know, for maybe 20 minutes, half an hour, explaining what kind of, you know, what they had done to me, the type of injuries I had, what the short term impact would be, the long term impact. And particularly the orthopedic guy, I, you know, when I think back to it now, I, he knew where I was coming back to and he kept kind of repeating, whatever you do, do not sit up. So I was on the, lying on the flat on my back because I'd broken six ribs and I'd broken my shoulder and I had, I'd shattered my pelvis. So there was no, I mean, can you imagine trying to sit up with those mm-hmm. kind of injuries? And he said to me, you know, we've we've fixed, you know, we've set your f- pelvis um, and your ribs are going to take a while to heal. And, you know, obviously your clavicle, you know, can you imagine trying to stand up with crutches with a broken shoulder? So he said, whatever you do, do not sit up. And he kind of gave me dates. Now, everything, of course, was in French in my file coming back. And he said, you know, you won't be sitting up for another two weeks. You are. Uh, yeah, you won't be sitting up for another two weeks. You're not to get out and put any weight on that leg for another. I think it was another four weeks after that. So he had given me kind of fairly strict instructions. So, of course, when I came back to Waterford, you know, you would think that they would get these files translated fairly sharp and kind of, you know, stick to what I had been told. But this orthopedic surgeon kind of came around the following morning. I came in late at night and the following morning he came around and had a quick look at my file and really didn't do much because it was mostly in French. So he couldn't read it. And he said, right, right, well, I'll send a physiotherapist round to your bed now tomorrow morning and we'll get you out of that bed and on on those feet. And I said, no, you won't. And my poor dad was sitting on the chair beside me in the bed and he was nearly at this stage, you know, kind of crawling <laughs> down, slithering down his chair. God love him. But you know what that comes from? You know, it's institutionalized into us, isn't it? Do not question the doctor. And I just thought, I am not putting up with this here now, you know. I, I I just couldn't believe that this guy had the audacity to come and tell me that he was going to get me out of the bed. But at 18, to, to be that forthright with a consultant is really impressive. Uh, you see, I've, I would be like that with anybody. Yeah. That, and, and to me, mm. it didn't matter what your title was. You know, if you were doing something yeah. to me that was going against either my principles or, 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 or the advice of a, a doctor who'd operated on me. I mean, I didn't care who he was. And I just said, absolutely not. You know, and we had a kind of a standoff and he turned on his heel anyway and walked off and then he got the sister on the ward at the time you know they would have had sisters on the ward say nurses and that's what they would have been called whereas now it's clinical nurse managers or whatever but she came over and she kind of told me off and I said hang on here now I said this is my body I said I'm only following the advice I said of the surgeon who operated on me in France I said and I think I'll follow his advice over a surgeon I have no I don't know anything about this guy I said so get my file translated I said and you'll see I'm not being um difficult I'm following advice simple as that but he had the he had the cheek then to send a physiotherapist for two or three days in a row and I kept sending him away I mean c- can you imagine like he, he had no respect for my wishes he had no idea of you know the trauma that I'd and he was still trying to kind of force his authority on me I suppose you know system focused again Exactly. But then Instead of saying about you. they got my file translated and obviously realised what I was telling them was the truth. And But there was there an apology? No, there wasn't. Not once. You know, you said that time taught you resilience. Yes, it really did. The whole period. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was the first that was the first time I had to kind of, you know, when something like that happens to you, you know, like, you know, yourself after having a brush with cancer, it does. It changes you, doesn't it? You know, you can never be the same person again when something like that happens to you. Something that's life changing. You either go one way or another. And I was very bitter and angry for, you know, two or three years. But I, I learned to kind of, you know, things that helped me to get out of that. So I would have that was kind of the period when I started getting into sport. So I would have st- I, I had to do an awful lot of swimming after my um, accident for rehabilitation. 
um, because they thought I'd actually end up with the limp. And I didn't, thank God, because I did everything I was told. Um, but I realized that I actually enjoyed the kind of the peace in the water. You know, you know, the minute you put your head in the water, you can't hear anything else and you tune it all out. It's like a bubble. It, it, it can be monotonous. But for me at the time, it was relaxing and it was kind of able to get out of my head. So I started swimming a lot um, and I... You know, like everything with my life, when I started running, I trained for a marathon. When I started swimming, I decided I'm going to become a lifeguard. So, you know, I, I kind of go to, uh, uh, you know, the nth degree with it, I suppose. I don't just, you know, do it for pleasure. I have to. But I suppose that kind of drove me on, you know. So I found sport helped me kind of come out of myself Um and I threw myself into my studies, Uh, you know, but I did become very kind of socially reclusive I suppose I didn't go out for quite a while I didn't drink for a long time after the accident because every time I had a couple of drinks I'd get weepy um and I would get flashbacks so I didn't drink for a couple of years I suppose until you know uh I I I I suppose the trauma until the trauma was kind of gone out of my system green and blacks wildly deliciously organic a selection of ethically sourced flavors combined with a rich cocoa intensity the next moment you want to talk about is a period that where you experienced very bad depression. Um, um, and it was after the birth of, of your eldest daughter. Um, and I know you've said exercise helped you to come out of that very, very difficult period. But do you want to talk to us about Amelia's birth and, and the period up to it that would have triggered that very low point in your life? Yeah, so um, by the time I um, got married um, and, you know, decided to have a baby, um, things have been fine. You know, life had kind of moved on and I had, you know, finished my degree and I'd started working and um, I had met Jim in the meantime. And we decided, I mean, he wanted to get married for years and I just kept putting it off and said, no, I'm too young, too young. So by the time I got married, I was nearly 30 and uh uh, we had we, we had been planning to to go away to get married, and um, we initially we were supposed to go to Sri Lanka. Um, I just wanted to go somewhere totally kind of far flung that I might never get to before, because you know yourself once you have kids, that's it. You don't tend to do a huge amount of traveling. So of course um, that all changed when I uh, got pregnant before we got married, because I believed the doctor when she told me, you know, if you come off the pill now. Um, it'll probably take, take a while. It'll take a while. It, it did not <laughs> take a while. It, there was a moment of, you know yourself, a few drinks at Christmas and that was it. <laughs> so we had to change our plans then. So we uh, went to St. Lucia. Uh, so I had to go somewhere I didn't have to have vaccinations because once I was pregnant, you can't have anything like that. So we went to St. Lucia in the Caribbean and it was lovely. And we got married and I was about, I think I was 10 weeks pregnant when we were getting married. Um, but it was fine, you know, I mean, I, was, I wasn't a spring chicken, so it wasn't a big deal. And I wanted to have a baby. So, you know, it just all happened at the same time. But um, my pregnancy went fine until and I was, you know, I was swimming. I, you know, that was a period I was still swimming at that stage. So I was swimming every day um, during my pregnancy. So I remember going into my see my gynecologist um, at my 28 week scan. And up to that point, I had had a, you know, absolutely fine pregnancy, but I was starting to feel tired. And I remember saying to my mother, I said, is it normal to feel this tired? Because I was really exhausted. And uh, sure, my mother, you know, had five children. I don't know. Should I didn't have time to be tired, you know. So and none of my friends had babies, so I couldn't really ask anybody. But um, I just thought this must be normal. But that was the only symptom I had. So I was really tired. Went in this day for my 28 week scan and I'd had my swim, but I was like absolutely breathless after kind of getting dressed. And I was going to say it to him. And next thing anyway, I was up on the bed and he was, you know, doing the the ultrasound on my belly and I even I and I'm not you know trained at looking at these things I could see that I said why is that all black so you know when you're looking at the baby's abdomen and you see the little organs you see the heart and you see the lungs like and everything else is gray or white this was all black 
And I knew that wasn't right. And he said, mm. so, you know, he said, just give me a minute now. So he kept kind of moving around and there was no, no, no talk for a couple of minutes. And I'm starting to get panicky. And I thought, Jesus, there's something wrong here, you know. So anyway, when he was finished, he said to me, um, yeah, I'm not happy with that now, Vicky. He said, what you're seeing there, he said, you're right. He said, it's all black. He said, that's all fluid. He said, there's a huge amount of fluid on your baby's abdomen. He said, that's not normal. Um, he said, you know, I don't really know what's wrong yet. He said, but it's not good. He said, it's one of three things, really. He said, but I'm going to have to do some blood tests and keep you in until I know what I'm dealing with. So I had to go straight in and check in then to the hospital and I had to ring Jim and oh, it, was, it was awful. It was awful. So this pregnancy kind of didn't start at that point at 28 weeks pregnant. That was the start of everything really changing. So kind of between the jigs and the reels, um, we found out that um, it was one of the things he really wasn't expecting it to be. It was very rare. She has congenital toxoplasmosis. So there's only maybe four or five kids diagnosed with this every year in, in Ireland. And you catch it from cats generally, or sheep farmers would off, would know about it as well. So it comes from feces, basically. So me and mam had been out gardening, you know, um, at the time. And sure, I wasn't wearing gloves. You, you know, you read about all these things and now you now I understand why it's so important. So I'd always say to anyone who's gardening or, or pregnant, do not go out in the garden or touch anything, you know, vegetables or whatever, unless, you know, uh, you're wearing gloves or make sure everything's washed. Because this is why they tell you to do it, because you can pick up this um, parasite will um, literally live in the feces and you'll pick it up somewhere and touch your face and it'll get in. So it's a parasitic infection. And what happens is the parasite then, if you're pregnant, you know, if you if you catch it, the most you'll get is flu-like symptoms and you'll be tired and your body will fight it off. But the problem is if you're pregnant and you pick it up, if it goes into the amniotic fluid and into the baby you know the baby doesn't have an immune system so uh, worst case scenario is blindness and severe brain damage and that's what we were told you know that they did, wouldn't know until she was born how bad the damage was and um and at what stage in the pregnancy were you about then around the 28 weeks maybe a bit later it was about thir- 30 weeks when we found out definitely it's a long time to wait it's a long time to wait now i was induced um in the end i was induced early at 36 weeks so i had Eight weeks of torture, really, I suppose, you know. Um, uh, but, you know, by the time she was born, I remember, you know, normally, uh, you know, I've heard from, and I did have it with Dara when I had my son and I had that nice experience, but I remember waiting for Amelia to be born. There wasn't, uh, you weren't kind of excited. You were just kind of going, oh, I hope she has 10 fingers, 10 toes and not a huge swollen head or, you know, hydro- you know, you're thinking of all these things, you know. Plus they'd, they'd given you really tough medication as well for the last, like you were sick. I, oh my God, I was so sick. I'll never forget it. It was actually worse than the treatment for cancer. Now I'll tell you that much. And, and, wow. that's, and that's bad. So because you see, it's so rare. They'd never, I was the, I'm the only woman they've ever treated who has been, um, where the baby has been diagnosed in the womb. I'm the only woman in the whole country who's ever been treated with these drugs. So they know, they don't really know what kind of effect they have on you, you know, and they're really toxic drugs. They're drugs that would have had to be ordered in specially because like they're so rare. And I know my gynecologist and he was a lovely man, a really lovely man. He he said to me, look, Vicky, I've never dealt with this type of a pregnancy before. It's so rare. I'm going to have to consult with specialists over in Wales, in Swansea. They they know all about this disease. He said, so, you know, I'm going to be taking my... And I, I appreciated that because he was being honest with me and he was telling me exactly, yeah. you know, and I, I think, yeah. you know, rather than tell me, oh, I know what I'm doing, he didn't. He said, look, I'm learning as much as you are about this. He said, you know, I've only read about this in textbooks kind of thing. So, you know, he, 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 he was constantly on the phone to, to the lab in Swansea. So I was put on all this medication and um, I'm, I'll never forget the amount of medication I had to take. It was about 45 tablets a day. 
Um, and my mother and myself would have had it all out on the table so that, you know, I didn't miss a dose. Um, but I remember, you know, th- the biggest side effect was just if I moved my head, I was vomiting. So I spent a lot of my time literally just lying in bed, staring at the ceiling. And I mean, you can imagine that would get in on you after a while. But it's no wonder you fell into depression when she was born. God. And then I suppose <sighs> when she was born, there's a huge relief, obviously, that, you know, yeah. this baby's out and she looked OK. Um, but then the whole kind of cycle of, you know, dealing with her started. And I'm not saying everybody forgot about me, but because, you know, the focus was now on the baby, you just have to get on with it. Do you know what I mean? So I was trying to breastfeed because I knew that was better for her. But I was, I mean, I had lost two and a half stone during the last six weeks of that pregnancy. So by the time I had her, I was a half a stone lighter than before I got pregnant, which in normal circumstances you'd be delighted with. But I was absolutely exhausted. There was nothing in me, you know, and of trying to breastfeed this child um, and try and keep myself uh, fed, uh, you know, and have some enough energy. And then she had to get medication three times a day. I had to inject her three times a week and we had to go to Crumlin um, every every six weeks and into the hospital in Waterford three times a week. So it was a lot. It was a lot for your first baby now to, it's not what anybody would want, to be honest. And when did you realise, okay, I'm depressed? When did, when were you able to actually put a, a name on it? I think she was probably about three months old and I had been um, asked, I was working as a consultant at that stage because I'd moved back home um, on a number of projects with UL. And they'd asked me um, before I uh, kind of had Amelia, would I work on a kind of pre-Christmas um, assessment for American students? And I had said, I was going to say no. And mam said, mam could see, she thought, no, maybe this, you know, she could see that I was really going downhill. And she said, no, no, tell them you'll do it. She said, I'll mind Amelia. She said, you start weaning her off there now. Stop that breastfeeding lark, you know, and, you know, start weaning her off and I'll take her. She said, and you go up to UL. She said, spend the week up there, she said, and it'll be good for you. So I decided, yeah, actually, you know, maybe she's right. So I did. And, and I went up to UL and I had weaned Amelia off and the mam had taken her and uh, I didn't miss her, not once for the whole week. And I remember coming back to pick her up from um, mum was crying, handing her over to me because she knew she could see that I nearly had a dead look in my eyes. I just had no interest in this child, you know, and um, took her back. And it was that day, I think, that I knew this isn't normal. You know, this is not normal to be feeling like this, to have no feelings towards your child. Um, And then I started kind of Googling it and looking up stuff about it myself. And I remember going back for a checkup, actually, a couple of weeks later with my gynecologist and I was too afraid to say it to him. Imagine, you know, I just couldn't bring myself to say it to him at that stage. Um, and I kind of kept it to myself and joined a forum online, a postnatal depression forum. And that was how I kind of started being able to say it, because I think there's a huge shame attached to it. And I, I mean, I'm even getting upset now thinking about it. There was huge shame, still is. At, you know, you're supposed to love your child. How can you admit that you don't love your child and that you don't have feelings for your child? And I felt huge shame. In, in admitting that, you know, so it took a long time for me to kind of um, accept that there was something wrong with me and to try and figure out a way that worked to 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 help. And how did you help yourself out of it? So I went to my GP, first of all, obviously, and, you know, I was absolutely kind of taken aback when all they were offering me was drugs, you know, antidepressants. And I kind of was sitting there waiting for, well, you should try this, this and this. And there was nothing else. Where's the holistic approach? Yeah, yeah. nothing. And I, I walked out and I thought, this is ridiculous. So I was just looking at the, the prescription going, drugs, that's it. So yeah. I got the prescription and I was reluctant to start taking it. But I thought, no, I have to, I have to just, you know, bite the bullet now. I, I suppose I felt, you know, I, I saw it like, a bit of a failure. I was a fa- you know, if I have to take these drugs, I've, I'm a failure. I know it's ridiculous, but that was my head. 
So I started taking them and I suppose within a couple of weeks I felt um, numb. That's the only way I can describe it. I just didn't feel like, I just thought, oh, this is even worse than feeling um, nothing. This is, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing coming out. So I kind of weaned myself off them because I thought I can't do this. I can't feel numb. And I suppose they were the type of antidepressants back in, that was what, in 2005. They're much better now because obviously I went back on antidepressants in latter years and um, I was on a sertraline and I found that much better. So I stayed on that for about three years and found it fantastic, I have to say. Uh, and the reason I'm saying that is I don't want anyone out there to think, you know, don't go down the antidepressant route. That's not what I'm saying. You might have to try different ones. And I suppose if I had known that back then, that there were other options that maybe if I tried another one, it might have worked better. But I just know at the time that one did not work for me and I couldn't. It actually made me feel blacker almost. I just had to come off it. So then I'd started thinking, well, what am I going to do now? Because this is not going to go away by itself. So I looked up kind of other, you know, treatments, alternative kind of things for depression. So I started doing acupuncture. Acupuncture was something I came across. And I had done acupuncture actually while I was pregnant because I was so very badly nauseated with morning sickness. Um, so I had had loads of acupuncture when I was pregnant and I went back to my acupuncturist, he was a lovely man. And he said, yeah, I treat women all the time. He said with postnatal depression, he said, absolutely, Vicky. He said, I can do that for you. So I found that helped. So I went religiously twice a week for that. And, um, and then exercise. I started doing exercise and the thing that I found that worked for me was running. I was like Forrest Gump, you know. <laughs> it's transformative, it is. It was for me and that's what worked for years for me was running. Um, and, you know, obviously over the years I've suffered with it really on and off for years really, you know. But I did have to go uh, down the medication route again uh, later. Uh, I think I started taking them again about 2000. Actually, it was after I got diagnosed with cancer. It was 2015 and I just thought I needed something. And it worked that time and I stayed on them for two years. And you said that you choose cancer over depression any time. Oh, 100%. And I know people yeah. might find that unusual mm. or, or or how could you choose that? But if you've never been really badly depressed, you don't know what it's like to wake up every day and to actually not want to wake up. You know, I used to look forward to going to bed every night just to get out of my head, to get to sleep and for my brain to shut down. It was terrible. Absolutely. I, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. It's an awful, awful disease. It really is. So I would pick cancer every day. I'd take pain over that any day or... You know, I, I mean, I'm lucky, I suppose, in that type of cancer I have at the moment. I'm not in pain, but I have had bouts of really bad sick sicknesses and really bad illnesses and times where I have had pain. But I would still take that over depression any day because, you know, I, it doesn't last. You know, it, 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 whereas with depression, you never know when it's you're going to come out of it. And I've had, you know, I had two years where I really, you know, I lost two years of my life to it, to be honest. As if all that wasn't enough, Vicky, and that should be enough. Um, Emilia had a, a terrible accident yeah, something else you wanted to talk about, yeah. Yeah, so that was in 2013 and I was really in a very bad kind of depressive episode at that stage. So, you know, I really could have done without this on top of everything else, but it happened. So it was January, the end of January, and I had come home from work. I was working in WIT and we were living in Limerick at this stage. And Amelia... Um, you were doing crazy commutes at that stage, weren't you? Yeah, but sure, look, you have to do these things. Jim had lost his job and, you know, he went back to college. So we had to, we, you have to do these things, you know. So I come back from work and I was back home early on the Wednesday evening. I always came home early on the third day and Amelia was up waiting for me. So she was only seven at the time and she was after having her bath and she'd really long hair kind of down her back at that stage. And normally I would dry her hair and I didn't this night because she was at the stage where she was starting to get a bit independent. She said, no, ma'am, I want to do it myself. So I said, all right, sure, go on, you do that. So she went off and she blow dried her hair. So she didn't blow dry it like I would, you know. Like you, you know, normally when you're blow drying your kid's hair, you'd have it 
the bone dry. Amelia didn't. It was still quite damp and that saved her head, to be honest, in, uh, with what happened. Thank God. So she came downstairs anyway and the hair was still a bit damp. Obviously underneath might have been dry on the outside. And she was in the sitting room. Um, the fire was lighting and she was prancing around. She was big into Barbies and dancing at the time. So she was watching this Barbie DVD that she was watching quite a lot of the time with these dancing princesses. And she had one of her dresses on. So she didn't have pyjamas or whatever on after her bath. She got into a bloody dress to start prancing around, you know. As they do. Yep. So off she was. Anyway, she, I could hear this bloody thing going inside. I had, you know, one of those things where the music literally, and I still remember the music to this day, sticks in your head. And I was in the kitchen making a cup of tea for the two of us before she went to bed. And I remember I had the tea made and I was literally just holding the mugs and turning around to go in the sitting room. And next thing I heard a scream. And the scream then was followed by her running into the kitchen. And I'll never forget it. She was running down the hall. And all, it was like something from a movie. All I could see was this fireball coming up over her head. I, I, I couldn't believe it. So I dropped the mugs and I screamed at Jim. Thank God he was home at the time. So he came. He didn't even have to say what. He just heard her screaming and me screaming. She, he came down and, you know, you have this moment where you just don't know what to do. Your child is on fire and you're like, what, what do we do? You know, so of course I'm a first aider. So you're kind of going, come on, come on, quickly kick in here. So Jim got the dress off her. I, I started pouring, got you know the, the buckets of water and throwing them over her. And Jim got the dress off, but he burned his hands. We didn't realize afterwards until afterwards, his, you know, his hands were quite badly burned from trying to pull the dress off. I mean, you know, afterwards you kind of think we had the scissors in the drawer. Why didn't we get that? But you don't think you're just at Panic. your, your panicking. You're in the moment and you're the adrenaline is there. That's yeah. it. So we got the dress off her and Jim was holding her kind of in his arms and he said, what will I do? Will I put her in a bath? And I said, no, 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 that that will kill her. I said, no, run, run, lukewarm water. I said, lukewarm water. And he was looking at me kind of as if I had two heads. He said, lukewarm water. I said, yeah, I'm telling you, that's what you have to do. I said, otherwise you'll put her into shock. And it all came back to me. And thank God it did, because we would have killed her if we'd put her in cold water, which is what you would think you would do, isn't it? Mm, uh, but no, it's keep running water and it has to be lukewarm. Luckily enough, there was still water left in the tank after her bath. So we kept the running water on her and she happened to have, I could see her arm was burned underneath her, you know, where your shoulder, you know, where you'd, you'd put deodorant on under your arm. And I just, I remember kind of keeping the running water on her and I kept telling her to keep her arms out so I could get the water under her arm. But I never thought... Because afterwards, I remember them saying to me, how did you think, how did you, you know, how did you know to tell her to keep her arm out? I said, what do you mean? And he said, if she hadn't kept her arm out for you to run the water over, he said, that would have fused. He said, and you'd, and, and you'd be dealing with a disability on top of burns. And that's something they wouldn't have been able to pull it back out. You know what I'm saying? If it had fused, I just thought, oh, sweet Jesus Christ, I couldn't believe this. But anyway, I rang obviously at the ambulance straight away while Jim was bringing her upstairs and uh, one of my neighbours is a paediatric nurse so I, I ran down to get her while Jim was keeping the water on her. She came up and helped um, and she said to me you better pack a bag. She could see straight away where this was going. Pack a bag. She said you'll be going to the hospital. Um, they'll bring you to Cork because she knew the burns were so bad that Limerick wouldn't be dealing with it. It would be Cork. So she, I was in kind of, you know, you're just totally out of it. So she was helping me pack the bag. I was in totally, it was her, what are you talking about, you know? Um, so we, we got in the ambulance and uh, they brought her into Limerick and then they put a burn pack on her and we were in an ambulance then on the way to Cork. And it was on the way to Cork then in the ambulance, in the back of the ambulance that I, that, 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 that what had happened hit me. And I started puking and I couldn't stop puking. And Amelia, God love her, she said to me, Mammy, why are you, why are you, why are you getting sick? <laughs> why are you getting sick? And I just, and the nurse, God, the nurse, I just looked at the nurse and the nurse, I couldn't even talk. I was, I was crying at that stage and puking. 
and the poor nurse was trying to keep, you know, Amelia going. And she said, oh, your mum just doesn't, it's it's the movement in the back. It's not a fair play to her. She said, the ambulance is quite, you know, you're lying down, you don't feel it. But if you're sitting up now, it's very, you know, rocky. And anyone who gets sick in the back of this ambulance, God love her. But um, yeah, she spent six weeks in hospital. She had two skin graft surgeries and months really of dressing changes, rehabilitation. Yeah, there was a lot. How is she now, Amelia? She just sounds like an amazing kid, like to have been through everything. Yeah. You know, from her birth. She must have constant medical appointments and then this huge trauma. Yeah. So we we, we, were, we already had constant medical appointments with her condition and then we had this and and when this was you know when she got discharged from hospital after that we were up and down to Cork as well as Dublin for hospital appointments for a plastics clinic so she's had a lot a lot to deal with in her life like she's 15 now um but like you know I look at her and just think you know she's gotten on with all of the shit that's been thrown at her and smiles throughout and just kind of gets on with life and very happy child and you know She's great. She has that resilience that, that you spoke of her. 100%. I think kids, and that's that's what I often think, if, you know, we should look to children more to the way they deal with what's thrown at them because they don't, as adults sink into it, we generally sink into something. If something happens to us, we feel sorry for ourselves and we sink into it instead of what children do. Children, something happens to them, like with the media, look at what happened to her. Uh, and as soon as she felt better, she never felt sorry for herself. She just wanted to go back and play with her friends and go back to school. And as soon as she got back to school and started, you know, going back to her normal self, that was it. She just moved on from it. Whereas if that was an adult, you'd be feeling so sorry for yourself. You know, and even now as a teenager, I kind of wondered, I was worried about how she'd deal with it as she got older. Because she has some scars that are up around her, her breasts. Um, and, you know, I kind of thought, God, this is the stage now where we're going to have this no, so, you know, so far she seems to be fine. She's accepted her body and, um, you know, I mean, we've been quite open about it and I've got quite a lot of scars from my own accident, which we could have, you know, I used kind of to my advantage. I said, well, I have skin graft too, you know, not as big as yours, but, um, you know, I never left it get to me and I moved on and, you know, had a life. And I think it's important to show children that, that no matter what you look like or what your body looks like or how, you know, nobody looks the same anyway, you know, that you have to, live live your life and, and get on with it and not feel sorry for yourself and I, you know and I think that's something that we really should take from children because they don't feel sorry for themselves ever. You feel you've learned a lot from her do you? Absolutely she's what drives me on really you know more than you know two children obviously poor Dara's in there as well but I think it's it's the way Amelia has dealt with everything that's been thrown at her she's never never felt sorry for herself or never and all she wants is to be the same as everybody else you know. Is she like you Vicky in her personality? She's worse. <laughs> She's probably more stubborn uh, than I am, if that's possible. So, yeah, she's very like me in ways. Yeah. The last um, point in your life you want to talk about is obviously your your cancer. Um, and what you've said to me in advance was very much focusing on how you deal with it on a day to day basis now. How do you manage it? How do you cope with it? Um, most of the time, I don't even think about cancer. And I think that's the key. Um now, that's easy when I'm feeling well. When I'm not feeling well, that's not easy, you know. But in general, I suppose I've been very lucky that I have been mostly feeling well. Um, I have a few twinges um, and, you know, I'd have a bit of pain uh, and discomfort. But, you know, it's nothing major and I, I can get past it. Um, the things that I, I suppose 
that cancer has taken away from me. One of the things that I suppose that really bothers me and it still bothers me, but I try not to kind of think about it is running. I really loved running and I miss it. I can't run anymore. Uh, and I see people out running and I get a, a momentary kind of, oh God, you know, uh, feeling. So there are times obviously where it does get to me, but I try and pull myself back and go, you know, I relativize it. I go, well, I'm still alive. I'm still well. I'm not in a hospital. I'm not in a hospice and I'm not dead, you know, because I suppose in the last two years, I've seen so many women uh, that I've met um, or who have been in touch with me who have died from this cancer. So for me to be still alive nearly three years later is miraculous, to be honest, um, and to be as well as I am. That's the thing, you know, and, you know, for as long as that lasts, sure, how, why wouldn't I be happy? You know what I mean? That I'm still here. Um, because if you start dwelling on, well, why did I get cancer and why did it happen to me? I've done that before and it gets you nowhere. I can't mm. do that because I've done it before and that, that, that does not work for me. So I look at the positives of cancer and the positives that I have had from cancer is, and I don't know if it's because of the cancer, but my depression certainly hasn't reared its head in three years. And for me, that's huge, huge that that has not happened. Um, that I've had almost three years depression free. Um, and I've met so many lovely people, you know, I've met so made so many. I mean, I'd never have met Stephen Teep or Lorraine Walsh, you know, the two campaigners I work alongside um, and they've become absolutely, you know, fantastic friends. I'd be on the phone to them daily at this stage. I'd never have gotten to do half of the stuff that I've done over the last two and a half years. Like I've done more living, I think, in the last two and a half years than I did in the previous 10 you know, any opportunity that comes my way, I take it. I grab it with both arms. Um, so, you know, I look on the positives rather than the negatives. And is that a conscious decision to be positive, Vicky? Yeah, yeah, it's not natural. And I think we're all like that. It's not a natural way to be. Um, I think if something bad happens, you kind of go, tend to go, oh, feck's sake, you know. And But I, I pull myself back straight away and go, look, it's not the end of the world. Like yesterday. I got speeding points. I said, oh, Jesus, here we go again. You know, I, I went, you know, I opened up the envelope and I had a fair feeling that I, I, I was caught a couple of weeks ago. And um, I just looked and I went, oh, God, no. And straight away, my brain went into the the poor me mode, you know, oh, here, no, for God's sake, here we go again. You think they'd have nothing better to do. And I stopped. I said, right, do you know what? Just park it, put it back in my bag, pay the fine, move on. So uh, it is a conscious thing that you have to stop yourself from kind of being sucked in by that negative energy because it's there. It's there for everybody, you know. All the traumatic moments, and they were such traumatic moments that you've described to us over the last, you know, hour on this. Have they have they helped you to get to a point where you have such strong coping mechanisms? Because what you're dealing with now is very hard. I think so. I think that I think the reason I am as strong as I am today is because of what's happened to me. It's as simple as that. I think because I think when one thing happens to you, like, you know, my, my first experience, when you think about it, you know, my accident was the first bad thing that happened to me. It took me two years to stop being angry and bitter about that, you know, and that would be most people's reaction. But because I kept having things happen to me, I, could, I didn't have two years, you know, to keep kind of, uh, you know, getting over things. So and, and as well as that, you learn things along the way that help you cope with these with these things. So as I moved on through life and things, other bad things happened, you learn, well, I, I, that didn't work the last time. Do you know what I mean? And look what happened, you know? So I suppose along the way I found, you know, I knew that exercise worked. So I, I always, I always, you know, went to exercise. 
for anything that happened to me to kind of get out of my head. Um, and that might not work for everybody, but it works for me. You know, for other people, it could be knitting. My mother loves knitting. She finds that very therapeutic. She will sit in front of the television with her knitting and that's what works for her. Uh, for somebody else, it could be dancing or playing music, whatever it is, you know. But for me, it was always exercise. That was my go to when bad things happened and it got me out of my head. Um, and even if it's only for that hour, it helps to get you out of your head and you, you're automatically, I think, in a better place when you come back and you're, you're thinking process is much more positive. You're focused. Yeah. So, you know, I think all of the things along the way have taught me something different, but they've also given me different, um, coping mechanisms because they've all been very different, you know, and I suppose with Amelia's accident, what that taught me, that was the first time something happened that wasn't to me. So that happened to my daughter. That was actually harder because and 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 in in some respects I can see how hard it is for my parents, for example, with me, because um, I had to step back at the time with Amelia's accident and say this isn't about me, this is about her, um, and it was very hard. It's very hard because all you want to do, particularly when it's your child, is protect them, but you can't. You know, you can only do so much, and I had to allow her. I couldn't wrap her in cotton wool. You know, there were times when she wanted to kind of when she started going back to school, I didn't want her to go back to school. I wanted to keep her at home because I was worried that kids would be saying things about her or, you know, things like that. You wanted to protect her yeah, and hide her away. You can't do that. You can't do that. So no, I had can't. to let her go. So, you know, you learn things along the way, I think, with all of the stuff that's happened to me that helped me deal with other areas of my life, you know. It made you strong. Yeah, yeah. I think you're the strongest person I've ever met, Vicky. Well, I, you know, I'm from Kilkenny. I don't know. I must have, I must be near the end of my nine lives now um, <laughs> at this stage. Um, but yeah, look, I suppose I'm, I'm happy to be still here. My kids are 15 now and nine. And I always said, you know, if I could get my son to double digits, I'd be happy and he'll be double digits in February. So I'm doing well, you know. I mean, I look at Stephen Teep, you know, his wife um, was 35 when she died and their kids were four and two. I mean, that's horrendous. You know, those poor children lost their mother at such a formative age. So I, you know, like, so that's what I, I look at that and I go, well, my kids still have me, you know, yes, you know, they're going to lose me at some stage, but they've had me for far longer than those poor children had their mother. So that's kind of what I do. I relativize a lot of the time. I mean, I could feel sorry for myself and my children, but my children have had me for far longer than those children had their mother. So that's how I kind of manage the day or manage if I start feeling sorry for myself. I look at somebody else who's in a far worse situation and Stephen is still, you know, getting up every day and, you know, the kids have a fantastic father and they'll be OK. You know, the kids will be OK. Kids are very resilient. Well, Vicky, enjoy the toy show later. Oh, I will. I can't wait. It's going to be so special. <laughs> Thanks for sharing everything with us today. Thanks, Vicky. Thank you. Thanks so much to Vicky for talking to us. Sound and editing were by JJ Vernon. And we'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.